Hello, I'm Mary, and you're listening to First Pages Readings. In this podcast, I explore reading and celebrate books as cultural messengers. Each episode, I'll read from three books of either fiction, nonfiction, young adult, middle grade, or poetry. Hello, and welcome to First Pages Readings, Episode 12. And thanks for joining me. Today's nonfiction books belong on a lifetime bookshelf. I read them slowly and reread sections because the books have so much to teach me. These books should be required reading in schools across the United States. Let's get started. Today's first book is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. The book describes the author's experiences in a Nazi concentration camp and explores his belief that our drive to find meaning and purpose is life's most important and sustaining goal. The first page of Man's Search for Meaning. Experiences in a Concentration Camp This book does not claim to be an account of facts and events, but of personal experiences. Experiences which millions of prisoners have suffered time and again. It is the inside story of a concentration camp, told by one of its survivors. This tale is not concerned with the great horrors which have already been described often enough, though less often believed, but with the multitude of small torments. In other words, it will try to answer this question. How was everyday life in a concentration camp reflected in the mind of the average prisoner? Most of the events described here did not take place in the large and famous camps but in the small ones where most of the real extermination took place. The story is not about the suffering and death of great heroes and martyrs, nor is it about the prominent capos, prisoners who acted as trustees, having special privileges, or well-known prisoners. Thus, it is not so much concerned with the sufferings of the mighty, but with the sacrifices, the crucifixion, and the deaths of the great army of unknown and unrecorded victims. It was these common prisoners who bore no distinguishing marks on their sleeves, whom the capos really despised. While these ordinary prisoners had little or nothing to eat, the capos were never hungry. The next book is the second edition of We Are Still Here by Peter Iverson and Wade Davies. This book addresses history, culture, survival, federal policies affecting Native Americans, and more. The first page of We Are Still Here. As always, any mispronunciations are respectfully unintentional. We Indians will be Indians all our lives, 1890 to 1920. On the day after the massacre, the blizzard came. Two days later, the weather cleared and the young Dakota physician assumed charge of the hundred people, most of them Indians, who ventured forth to seek the living and the dead. He never forgot that scene. Fully three miles from the scene of the massacre, we found the body of a woman completely covered with a blanket of snow, and from this point on we found them scattered along as they had been relentlessly hunted down and slaughtered while fleeing for their lives." Some of our people discovered relatives or friends among the dead, and there was much wailing and mourning. When we reached the spot where the Indian camp had stood, 
Among the fragments of burned tents and other belongings, we saw the frozen bodies lying close together or piled upon one another. I counted eighty bodies of men who had been in the council and who were almost as helpless as the women and babies when the deadly fire began, for nearly all their guns had been taken from them. The doctor was Ohiisha, or as he was called as a student at Dartmouth College and the Boston University Medical School, Charles Eastman. Today's third book is The Half Has Never Been Told by Edward E. Baptist. This book is a deep dive into slavery's role in building capitalism in the United States. The book compellingly includes individual stories, as well as theory and statistics. The first page of The Half Has Never Been Told. Feet, 1783-1810 Not long after they heard the first clink of iron, the boys and girls in the cornfield would have been able to smell the grown-ups' bodies, perhaps even before they saw the double line coming around the bend. Hurrying in locked step, the thirty-odd men came down the dirt road like a giant machine. Each hauled twenty pounds of iron, chains that draped from neck to neck and wrist to wrist, binding them all together. Ragged strips flapped stiffly from their clothes like dead-air pennants. On the men's heads, Hair stood out in growing dreads or lay in dust-caked mats. As they moved, some looked down like catatonics. Others stared at something a thousand yards ahead. And now, behind the clanking men, followed a marching crowd of women loosely roped. The same vacancy painted in their expressions, endurance standing out in the rigid strings of muscle that had replaced their calves in the weeks since they left Maryland. Behind them all swayed a white man on a gray walking horse. The boys and girls stood, holding their hoe handles, forgetful of their task. In 1805, slave coffles were not new along the South Road through Rowan County, here in the North Carolina Piedmont, but they didn't pass by every day. Perhaps one of the girls close to the road, a 12-year-old willow, stared at the lone man who, glistening with sweat and fixed of jaw, set the pace at the head of the double file. Perhaps he reminded her of her father, in her memory tall. A few years back, he'd stopped coming to spend his Saturday nights with them. The girl's mother said he'd been sold to Georgia. Now in the breath of a moment, this man caught her staring eyes with his own scan as he hurried past. And perhaps, though he never broke stride, something like recognition flashed over a face, iron as his locked collar. This man, Charles Ball, a 25-year-old father of two, could not help but see his own daughter ten years hence. If you liked listening to this episode, please leave a review and tell me what you think.